understand in chapter 25, verse 1. Uh, Felix is out. Festus is in. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the chief priests and the principal men and the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. And so they're saying, hey, Festus, would you go back to Caesarea, have Paul come back here, because in their mind they wanted to try to kill him. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself tended to go there shortly. So he said... So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. One thing you're seeing over and over and over again is some sympathy from the Roman government towards Paul because they were just trying to hold order and they didn't want to get involved in this religious war, so to speak. And so you're going to see the same case against Paul and Paul's same defense. After he had stayed among them in verse 6, Not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And so they were many in number, they were serious in nature, but they were unfounded and they had nothing to say. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the Jews, hey, I'm an Old Testament guy, nor against the temple, I love to worship, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Biblically, religiously, and politically, Paul was not to be blamed. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Similar to Felix, he's trying to do the Jews a favor. He's trying to really just get rid of it and get it out of under his jurisdiction. But Paul said, I am standing, verse 10, before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He is a Roman citizen. He can do this. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And watch this verse, verse 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul had a clear conscience. He had said that over and over. He was above reproach. He was not perfect, but he had nothing to hide and he was willing to die. But if there's nothing their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Five times throughout these two chapters, you're going to see this word appeal. Paul is wanting to go to the direct source And this Caesar that he's appealing to is Nero Caesar, who ruled from 54 to 68. From 54 to 59, it was peaceful. It was this time. But in 60 to 68, this is the one who would become paranoid and get rid of Christians by any means possible. Nothing new under the sun. The question I would ask us all here today is, why is Paul so bold? Why is he so confident? He's ready to die. And he appeals to the highest authority on earth at that time. Then Festus, verse 12, when he conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You're going to Rome, Paul. Jesus promised it, you desired it, and now God's making it come to pass all through the legal system. And so now you see Festus and Agrippa. Paul goes off the scene for a minute, and you see Festus and Agrippa. This is Agrippa II. This is the son of Herod Herod Agrippa I that we met in 12. 
chapter 12 of this book. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one that you read about in Matthew 2, 21. And so this Agrippa II is brought up uh, by a paranoid uh, grand, great-grandfather and a political father. And so he is just of the world. But some say he was one who, who was somewhat tried to be pious, and so he comes onto the scene. And now some days had passed. Agrippa the king and Bernice, who was his half-sister and constant companion, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. And Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, and much of what you're going to see through the rest of this chapter, we've already covered. There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met their accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. And so he's reiterating, nobody's brought any charges against this man that are worthy. Rather, and notice his his laissez-faire attitude here. They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. And notice this, and about a, I wonder how he said it, about a certain Jesus who is dead and whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus does not know the Lord. Who is this Jesus? Being at a loss to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He, being a Jew, wanted to hear Paul. Tomorrow, he said he, you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, kind of a ticker tape parade. They're coming into this hall, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. It's a big to-do. Here, here comes the king to hear Paul. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. He is making this statement before Agrippa, Bernice, all these military tribunes, the prominent men of the city. This is public. But I have found that he has done nothing deserving death. Public proclamation, Paul is innocent. And he himself appealed to the emperor, and I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Interesting what Festus thought of Caesar. And many at that time would think that Caesar was the savior of the world. Here's a man who does not know Jesus, but appeals to, quote, his Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. I don't want to look like an idiot. I'm going to send him to Caesar, so let's get this over with. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending the prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so that's 25. That works us right up to Paul's defense before Agrippa. And so Paul, with a polite introduction, comes on the scene. You saw it in 22, you saw it in 24, and you see it here in 26. Paul's defenses before public audiences. And here today, he goes into the most detail of 
the good news of Jesus Christ. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Agrippa had been known to be somewhat pious in his life, and he, he was uh, one that Paul knew. If I explain to him what I've explained to them, maybe he'll get it. And so Paul says, Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I love that. I'm going to use that when I, when I have something long-winded to say. I'll say, Beloved of Eagle Bible Church, I beg you to listen to me patiently. <laughs> and so here's Paul. He's going to give you his life. He's going to give you his life prior to meeting Jesus. He's going to give you his life at meeting Jesus. And he's going to give you his life after meeting Jesus. Prior to, he's going to say, I was a Jew of Jews. I was a good Jew and I was against Jesus. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. I don't understand why they keep bringing these charges against me. They know exactly who I am. He would write in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former manner in life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Let me just pause right there. People are out there. There's nothing new under the sun. And there are people out there who are going to try to destroy the church. It will not happen. Paul was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul says, I was a good Jew. Verse 5, they have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, if they're willing to step up and speak the truth and not try to condemn me, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul would go on to say in Philippians 3, 4, and 6, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. Ladies and gentlemen, beloved, this is where America is. They want to have confidence in the flesh. I have more, says Paul. I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of, of the right um, religion. Of the people of Israel, I was of the right nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin, I was not only of the right nation, I was a part of the select tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to a law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul said, I, if, it, if there's any Jew that should be standing up here as the one who is the epitome of Jews, it is me. But he said all of that, he would go on, and I don't have it up there, so don't. Don't look for it, but just you can go read it yourself for homework. Paul says, I count all of that. I had it all. I'm from Harvard. I'm from the whatever family. I'm doing all these good things. I am the, the best American I could be. But I count all of that, all of that as a loss, as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. And so in 6, he says, I now stand here on trial because, and I love this, my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul has a hope based on God's promise to God's people, to which the 12 tribes hope to attain 
as they earnestly worship night and day. Paul recognized there was, they, they, they were in this stream leading to Jesus. The Messiah came through the Jews, and he said they have a hope. He would say in Romans, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, is that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. But being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And he says, here's the point. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul would say to the Romans, I want them to come to know the Lord. They're in the right uh, flow, so to speak, but they just are blind to the Jew of all Jews, Jesus Christ. And so he would say in verse 7, And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I love that. Paul is appealing to them with questions. He's saying, why are, what, if you guys worship this almighty God who created the world and you believe that, and you believe, Daniel, that he will raise some to eternal life and some to eternal death, why is it incredible for you to think God raises from the dead? Paul is just doing what he saw his master do. Jesus was a master of asking questions of people. Paul is just following them. One of my favorite books on evangelism is called, catchy title, Questioning Evangelism. Now, he's not questioning whether we should evangelize, so don't misread the title. But he's talking about how to use questions when you go out and evangelize. Because when you do that, you discover people's beliefs and you can uncover their illogical ideas. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? You all believe this God who created the world. Why couldn't he raise the dead? And so he's going to go on and he's going to tell you just how against the Lord he was. I was convinced that I ought to do many things, verse 9, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest. He did this legally. But when they were put to death, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He voted against them. I punished them often in all synagogues. He punished them. To tried to make them blaspheme in a raging fury against them. He tried to set them up, just like he's being set up. And I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Here's a man, and this is the hope. This is the hope. I remember back in Texas, it was at the time of Saddam Hussein, we were all meeting to pray a special prayer for those in that part of the country. And it was brought up, and I'm so glad it was. Some people looked funny and said, shouldn't we pray for Saddam Hussein? And this is the hope. Here, here is the absolute enemy of the church, locking people up, voting them for dead, punishing those that are still alive, setting them up so he could do that, and persecuting them in every city. It is no wonder as you see in the next slide, that he called himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. It is no wonder that he called himself the least among the apostles, the least of the saints, and the chief of sinners. Yet this Paul, this enemy of the cross, this enemy of all of God's people, would become the one who would say in 1 Corinthians 11, you follow me as I follow Christ. And so with what's gone on today over in Paris, our prayer is for those who have 
who have received wickedness upon their nation. And our prayer is for ISIS, that they would repent. And if you don't think God can make them repent, you don't know how great God is. How wonderful would it be for that group of people to repent, to fall on their knees and worship the Lord Jesus Christ? And we should pray for them. Because right now they are blasphemers, persecutors, and violent aggressors. So how would this Paul, how would Paul go from, from one who was an enemy of God to the chief spokesman for God, 13 letters that are in the Bible? Verse 12. It was in this connection. I was the one who was to go and persecute the Christians. I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priest. I was going to do this legally. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Interesting. Jesus spoke to, spoke to Paul in the Hebrew language. Did you know you spoke the Hebrew language this morning? Hallelujah. The Hallel song just means praise the Lord in Hebrew. And so here's Jesus speaking to Paul, and he says, Why are you persecuting me? When you persecute, I, I would take this. This is the verse I would take. When you see ISIS bomb churches and kill Christians, this is the verse I would take. You're not just persecuting us. You're persecuting Jesus. You don't want to persecute Jesus. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. King Jesus is coming, and you don't want to be on that side of his return. And so Jesus, so Paul says, and I said, who are you, Lord? Greatest question you can ever ask. Who is the Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose. Jesus came, he knocked Paul off his horse, and he told Paul to get right back up. I have a purpose for you, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. You'll be under and with authority. You will be under my authority. I am the king. Uh, there is not a king that you should follow but me. And to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will show you, it says here, appear to you, but I think a better translation is to show you. Delivering you from your people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Why? And here is the key. One of the greatest, if you were memorizing a verse, in Acts, this would be one of those to memorize, to open their eyes. I'm sending you, I will protect you, and you're going to proclaim the good news so that their eyes would be open. My sweet wife, when we were flying home on our honeymoon, I was sitting next to uh, a gentleman from another religion, and I was trying to, I had my Bible on the plane. It's always a good thing to do. Oh, I see you're a religious man. <laughs> Here we go. but I was trying to evangelize in the flesh. Should have just said, hold on one second. Let me pray to the creator of the world who sustains this airplane, even though we're flying it. Let me pray to him so that I'm, 
And I tried to evangelize in the flesh, and I, he just wasn't listening to my wonderful apologetic. And my sweet wife, after they got on the plane, I was just, I was just frustrated. And she reminded me of why I'm a Calvinist. She said, baby, your eyes are blind. blind doesn't get it doesn't see it and no matter how eloquent you can present it if you don't ask the lord jesus christ through the power of the holy spirit and god to work on their heart nothing's going to happen but he was going to send paul so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of satan to god let me just say this and go on public record about what's happening in the middle east in this new regime it is the power of Satan has nothing to do with God at all. Nothing. It is, as the Bible says, the power of Satan. There is no more holiness in that group of people uh, than there is in, a, in Vegas. <laughs> what does he want them to see? That they may receive forgiveness of sins pardon you're me you're telling me that if that group of people repents god would forgive their sins yes that's how big god is that's how gracious he is and not only forgiveness of sin but a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me pardon from sins a place you have a clean record and you have a community of the redeemed And they're, notice here, they're sanctified by faith in me. Brothers and sisters, let us not go about our Christian walk in works of the flesh. You are made holy by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. You're sanctified the very same way. And so here's Paul saying, I was the enemy of the church. And now I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed me who I was. And he gave me a purpose in life. And now, verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared it first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. And here's a nice summary, that they should repent and turn to God, the true God, the only God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is no other God. Allah is not God. It is the power of Satan. Let me say that clearly. Allah is not God. Not even close. Repent. It means to change your mind and turn to the one true God. And how are we going to know this? Because you will perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Sounds like John the Baptist. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. It is for this reason. Paul narrows it down. This is why they want to kill me, because I don't believe in what their religion. I believe in the one true God. I believe in Jesus Christ. To this day, verse 22, I've had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small and great. I love that, to small and great. I'll testify to the king. I'll testify to the peasant. I'll testify to some women by the river. I'll testify in, in this auditorium with all these military tribunals. I remember when I first started 
teaching. It was to five people in a foyer in Denton Bible Church. And all I was doing was merely repeating what I learned that week from Tom Nelson. Whatever he said, I would go repeat it. And I would repeat it. Five people. And then you can preach to 60 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. It does not matter. And just like Paul would say, I'll teach one, I'll teach one million. It doesn't matter. I'll teach, I'll teach the guy that's can, that doesn't have a degree and I'll teach the guy that has all the degrees. It doesn't matter, says Paul. And saying nothing, here's what he's going to say. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses had come to pass. I'm going to teach them the Old Testament. That Christ must, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, that is the Jews, and to the Gentiles. And so maybe you're here today and you're saying, that's good, but I've never had the knocked off the horse experience. What about me? You don't have to be knocked off your horse to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank the Lord my daughter didn't get knocked off a horse or thrown out of a Jeep or going reverse in a truck or any other story that we can share up here. I thank God that she didn't have to. Amen? And those of you who have been thrown out of Jeeps, thank God when people don't have to. But the process is the same. The similarities is that there is the same Jesus that knocked Paul off his horse. That is the same Jesus that saved me. It's the same Jesus that saved those of you who know him. It's the same. Again, I'll quote the theologian Jeremy Camp, but it's true. The same Jesus that commanded the dead to wake lives in us. You mean to tell me when I'm reading the Gospels and it is Jesus who said, Lazarus, arise, that same Jesus is the one you're talking about? Yes. It's not a story. It's not words on a page. He is alive. He sits at the right hand of God and he reigns and he's coming back as soon as his father says, it's time. It's not a, this isn't a concept. This is a relationship. And so that same Jesus offers the same grace and the same process. There is life before Jesus. My life before Jesus was Paul in Philippians 3. I was trying to, as best I could, be the best I could apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from Jesus ruling my life. And I did pretty good at it. 3.9. I know that doesn't mean much to some of you, but to me, that was pretty good. I know there's 4.8 people who are taking AP class. I had a 3.9. Needless to say, it was in science fiction and some other things. But I had a 3.9. I worked for the best company on the planet. I had my insurance policy. Let me just say this. I worked for Arthur Anderson. And I had insurance policies that covered. It was like everything was covered. I was like, this is amazing. And I worked with some of the brightest people on the planet. And it was all about me. It was just all about me, how I was going to get to the pub. I was going to be a partner. And after 13 years, at age 36, I was going to be a partner and making millions of dollars. And then I was found myself down in Deep Ellum one night. Raising my fist to the creator of the universe. Telling him huh, how he should rule the world. 
And he had no reason to save me. He didn't go, oh, my goodness, you had a 3.9? Wow. Couldn't pass a CPA, but you had a 3.9. That's, that's not what he said, by the way. He didn't say anything audibly. I read it in the scriptures. But I shake my fist at him because things weren't going my way. Things of the flesh weren't going my way. And I go home, and by his grace and grace alone, I stumble, yes, literally, stumble into church the next day, and there's Curtis Rippey. And you know what Curtis Rippey was doing? Yeah, anybody ever heard of Curtis Rippey? Anyone? No, he's not famous. He'll never write a book. But God in his sovereign plan had me walk into a guy, walk into a Sunday school at a mega church in Dallas, Texas. And I walked in and he just happened to be good at athletics and an accountant with a rival, not as good accounting firm. Simple guy doing simple things and he was just walking through the scriptures and something about him went up to him after and said I got a meeting for you that changed my life I went to the only place I knew where to go church and changed my life forever so I can say, just like Paul, it is the same Jesus, it is the same grace, and it is the same process. There's Judd's life before Jesus, there's when Judd met Jesus, and then there's Judd's life after he met Jesus. And anybody in here can say the same thing. You don't have to have a date. I remember, when's your spiritual birthday? I don't know. Sometime back and then, it's daily. <laughs> it's celebrated daily. I, I get it. I get it for some. That's good. Keep it. But if you don't have a spiritual birthday, but you know that you were you were lost, but now you're found, you were blind, but now you see, that's all you need. And life after. You're waiting for that health and wealth thing too. Like, and after it's been perfect, I got a wife, I got a car. No, it hasn't been perfect. Because then I lost my father two months after. <laughs> and Curtis, whom you've never met, said maybe maybe the Lord took your earthly father so that you would see your need for a heavenly father. That's how it worked for me. And so Paul shares his testimony. I share mine. And you think, oh, great and wonderful things are going to happen. Not if you read verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, he's like yells, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He just doesn't get it. People will call you crazy. They'll write articles in the Vail Daily saying you're nuts for believing this stuff. And you know what? You can just say, 
consistent, matching up with what the scriptures tell me. You're calling me a fool? That's really weird because 1 Corinthians said you'd say that. Huh, you're just validating the text. And Paul said, and this is what you can say too, I'm not out of my mind, and he did it politely, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true, rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. He speaks the truth, he speaks it boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for he, this has not been done in a corner. Paul says, I do, I put all my cards on the table, I'm not playing any games. And then I, he goes with another question. I love this question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And then Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? There's two ways to take that. He's either being serious, and it's literal. I'm curious, will you persuade me? Or more people believe he's not. It's just a rhetorical question. You won't make me a Christian. But Paul takes the opportunity, verse 29, whether short or long, Agrippa, I would to God that only you also would, all you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love that. I love that. Become just as I am. I want you to believe in the Lord Jesus, but I want you to be free. Though I'm free, I want you to not have to carry these with me. Though I can have people here, and Luke comes, and, and I'm writing some letters now, and maybe you'll hear about them sometime. I want you to be out there in the world. Now watch this. Then the king arose. He didn't give an answer. He and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. Now watch what they say here. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Never, ever, ever underestimate what is said about you behind closed doors. You may never see it, but it, it is causing some people to check their spirit. Did you catch that? You can, you can read over those last three verses. You can re be reading through the book of Acts and you're like, oh, okay, 32-32. Yeah, that was, this was in a private meeting. How did they know about this? I don't know. Holy Spirit. That's pretty cool. Never underestimate what God is doing in conversations between believers, between unbelievers behind closed doors. It's amazing if you get out among unbelievers, they'll ask you things you're like, the Holy Spirit's got to be doing something here because they're asking me questions I don't want to know about. Why are they asking me to be, what it means to be baptized? Why are they asking me to help defend Jesus on Facebook? And that's happening. I had a guy call me the other day, hey, this guy's telling me on Facebook it's not right to pray in public, but, but I know that can't be true. Okay, I'm happy to share with you the scriptures. And then follow it up. Where are you with all this, my friend? We're not just, I have unbelievers defending Christianity on Facebook. It's fun. It's amazing what God can do when we're bold enough to speak the truth. So here are some questions for you to consider as we end today. Are you ready to die? I think it's pretty apropos to ask that question right now. Are you ready to die? Paul said, hey, if I've done anything 
worth dying and being committed. I'm ready to die. Why was Paul ready to die? Because he had met his maker. Because he had, he had met Jesus. He had received forgiveness. And he said, I'm ready to die. Are you? And are you prepared to proclaim your testimony to the Supreme Court? Could you, do you know well enough how God's worked in your life where you can say, you know what? I, don't, I appeal to the Supreme Court. Take me there. I'm happy to testify. So I'll leave you with this. You, you, in here, every single one of you, you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a unique story to share that I can't share because it's you, and I have a unique story to share. You have a unique story to share. Do it just like Paul did. Present it truthfully. I speak the truth, says Paul. I'm not out of my mind. Do it gracefully. Agrippa, you, you want to become a Christian? Oh, most excellent Festus, I'm not crazy. And do it boldly. Speak it boldly. Now more than ever, we do not need, you know, incognito Christians. Just, just going to be, you know, I'm just going to live my life and hopefully somebody will ask me. Now more than ever, we got to proclaim to our neighbors. But I may, but they may think I'm crazy. I know they thought Paul was crazy. But, but they, they may not like me. They may treat me with disrespect. They may not want to be friends anymore. Let's come here. We like you. We're all a little weird, aren't we? Present it boldly. And do what Paul did. He, he never once tried to manipulate the situation. He said, Here, here's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And he watched what God can do with the proclaimed word. Not the lived out word. That's awesome. Got to do that. That's your character that, that gives you credibility. But the proclaimed word. Do it in your elementary school. Do it in your high school. Do it in your college. Do it when you're going to get certs. Do it in your workplace. Understand there's law. Be savvy. As you do it, I'm not saying be bold and, and ignorant, just be shrewd as a serpent, but be bold. What the world doesn't need to see now is, is a non-answer from the Christian church. They need to hear that we care and that there's a solution to all the evil in the world, and his name is Jesus.